Awesome work. One of the best scripture readers I've yet to hear. Uh, that was my daughter, Zoe Kate, for those of you who missed that. Um, I, uh, I watched, I rewatched a movie recently that absolutely wrecked me. Uh, the movie centers on this young boy who's really quiet, but he's really into adventure, loves going on adventures. And he um, meets this neighborhood girl who's about his age, and she's really fun and quirky and talkative and adventurous. And they start palling around and going on adventures together, and they both realize that they both are dreaming about this, going on this big adventure to this place called, uh, uh, why am I blanking? Paradise Falls in South America. And they, uh, as the story goes on, they fall in love, they eventually get married, and uh, the, the story is kind of showing them growing up, and they get a house together, and in their house they have a, they have a picture over their like, mantle in their fireplace of Paradise Falls to remind them this is the goal. We're, we, this is where we've got to go. We're headed to this destination. And so they set out this glass jar, and they save every penny, every nickel, every dime that they can as they're, as they're saving up for this big trip. But, of course, life happens, and they get a flat tire and have an emergency surgery and different things like that. And so they have to kind of you know, dip into their savings, and on and on and on life goes on, and it just kind of shows this couple getting older and older, and this dream that they had never really coming into fruition until this is an old man at this point, and he's walking through the living room, and he sees the picture, and he looks at it, and he realizes we've never gone on this trip that we've always been dreaming about. And so he goes, and he spends the money, and he buys these tickets to go to Paradise Falls, and right before he presents these tickets to his wife, she's so frail and and, and old by this point that, that she's sick and she's unable to go on this trip. And she eventually passes away and the, the, the dream, the hope of this thing never comes to fruition and you're watching this and I'm just you know, decimated watching this movie. Of course, this is the first 10 minutes of the Pixar movie Up, if you're, if you're familiar. You go into this Pixar movie thinking, oh, it's it's Pixar, it's fun, it's bright, it's animated. And then you, you 10 minutes in, you're sobbing. And, uh, you know, it's this story, it's the story of loss, it's a story of unfulfilled dreams and longings, it's the story of sadness. And I bring that up because in many ways that's the theme of what is at the center of this psalm that was just so beautifully read for us this morning from Zoe Kate, that Psalm 126 is a psalm about tears, it's a psalm about sadness, it's a song about unfulfilled longings and loss, which is a universal human experience. We've all experienced in, in different ways, some minor, some major, loss and devastation and unfulfilled dreams and longings. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that sense of your tears and, and your sadness? And what this psalm does is it invites us to pray our tears. Now, if that sounds kind of like spiritualizing away your, your pain, if that sounds like kind of religious, like overly religious, I, I hope you'll say that this psalm is, is more sophisticated than you might realize at first glance. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through how this psalm shows you how to pray your tears. It shows us four different ways to pray your tears. Four, to pray your tears 
honestly, thoughtfully, faithfully, and expectantly. So that's what I want to look at, these four big ideas. How do you pray your tears honestly, thoughtfully, faithfully, and expectantly? Let's begin. How, how do you pray your, th- your tears honestly? Well, if, if you look at the actual psalm, I, I tried to break it up by putting a, a space in verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. And the reason I did that is because verses 1 through 3 is all past tense. It's a memory. In fact, you see all the verbs are in the past tense. The Lord restored. We were like those who dreamed. Our mouth was filled with laughter. He's daydreaming of a time when things were actually good. This is you know, he's like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, who's just dreaming of the good old days, like the glory days when he played high school football. This is what this guy is doing. He's looking back to a time when things are actually good because in his present circumstance, it's, it's bad. It's joyless. It's barren. This is why he says in verse 4, restore our fortunes. He's, he's longing for something that was lost to be restored. In, th- in fact, this is why he compares his present moment to the Negev or the Negev, depending on your translation, in verse 4. The Negev it was just this huge desert in the southern part of Israel, which for most of the year was just baked dry. It's just arid, hot wasteland where nothing really grows. And so the, where there were rivers are just like ditches carved into the ground. It's just like this epitome of just barrenness. And that's how he's describing his current moment. In fact, this is why he uses this metaphor in verses 5 and 6, talking about farmers going out into the field, throwing out seed, but they're, they're weeping as they do it. Meaning they're, 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 they're going through the normal routine of their life. They're going to work, but all the while they're, they're, they're sobbing. And you put all that together, what does that show you? It shows you that he is not afraid to be honest about his own sadness. He, he has given himself permission to, to cry. He's given himself permission to feel what he's actually feeling. He doesn't feel this pressure to feel buttoned up and I've got to put on a fake smile at church or if I go to work and somebody asks me how I'm doing, he doesn't say, good, good, You're busy, but good. I mean, he's not Southern in this Psalm. He's biblical. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed, which is a a, a great little book kind of reflecting over the loss of his uh, wife who died to cancer. And in that book, he talks in ways that probably make a lot of people feel uncomfortable as he, as, because he's so raw. He's so honest about his sadness. In fact, I'm just going to read you a little excerpt. He says this, when you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Now, that's pretty intense, but that's his honest experience. It feels like when I am in the depths of woe and I'm crying out to you, I get nothing. I get silence. And if 
for most kind of modern day Christians, I would imagine that feels inappropriate. That, that, that almost feels wrong. You can't say that. And yet, if you read the Bible, the, the Bible itself talks like that. Here's a little, here's some language from Psalm 13. Somebody writes, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Here's the point. The Bible gives you honest, the Bible, the Bible gives you freedom to be honest. It gives you permission to be honest. Now, my guess is, is there are some people in here that are deep feelers, and there are some people in here that are not deep feelers. Either way, however you are hardwired, do you give yourself permission to be honest about what you're actually feeling? Do you, do you let yourself feel what you feel, or are you afraid? Do you, do you rush in to manicure it, to uh, minimize it, to spiritualize it? Really, the first step to engaging with your own sadness is to be honest with it. That's the, that's the first step in this, in this whole thing. The way forward is to begin by praying honestly. That's kind of step one. Here's point two. Pray honestly, but pray thoughtfully. Meaning that the psalmist doesn't just encourage us to use our, our hearts, but to also use our minds. Uh, you, you might remember, we've been making this point, that this little chunk of psalms are uh, psalms of ascent, which means these were songs that were sung by pilgrims that traveled to Jerusalem. And these, so these were road trip songs. And even for when this psalm was written, Jerusalem was an ancient city. It was an old city. And anytime you get around old things, ancient things, you can't help but think about the past. I mean, you can't, you can't drive down South Main and see the Lorraine Motel and not think about what happened there not think about the history of our city. Uh, you can't drive by Sun Studios or Stax and not think about the history of music of, of Memphis. Anytime you get around these old things, that's just inevitable. You start thinking about the past. And so as he's approaching this ancient city, his mind goes back to this moment when things were so glorious and so wonderful. In fact, look at verse 1. He says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. He is intentionally thinking about a time when things were so good, so unbelievable that they had to pinch themselves to see if they were dreaming. And then he goes on, look at verse 2. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. He, he's thinking about when we were so blessed by God, we were delirious. We were just laughing, shouting with joy. Now, why is he talking about a time? Why is he thinking about a time when things were so good, things were so wonderful? Here's why he's doing this. Because he's actively recalling a time when God was faithful. He's remembering God's faithfulness and his goodness because he's currently in a moment where it feels like God is not faithful and God is not good. He's remembering something that is true historically. Now, we, we do this too. You, we, at Redeemer and in similar kind of Presbyterian circles, uh, we sing this famous song, Come Thou Fount. You might know this song. Uh, there's, a line, there's a weird line in that song that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, which is a, which is a strange line, but it's, it's a reference to this obscure story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 7 
where the people of Israel are fighting their enemies and God comes in and he, and he intervenes and he rescues them from the jaw of defeat and, and he gives his people victory. And what they do is they set up this like, they raise up this stone monument because the word Ebenezer is a Hebrew word that means stone of help. And so anytime they walked by this stone memorial, it was a way for them to say and remember, the Lord has helped us. Because in the future, we're going to come across a moment where it doesn't feel like the Lord wants to help us anymore. In, 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 we're going to come into a season of life where it feels like the Lord has abandoned us. And we need to look back and remember he is for us. He has not abandoned us. He did help us. In fact, this is what we do at Redeemer every single week when we come to the Lord's table. That is our Ebenezer. We, we, we do this, as we say, in remembrance of me. Because when we look at the cross and when we look at how Jesus' body was broken and how his blood was shed, it, 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 it rem we're using our mind to remember, okay, if God was generous enough to give away the thing that he treasured the most, his very son, if he was willing to give up his son for me, then that can't mean that he's abandoned me right now. No matter how painful, how gut-wrenching, how terrible my circumstances are right this moment, it is a cosmic impossibility for him to abandon me. He's, I don't know why this is happening, but I know that he's for me. I know that he's with me. That's why we look back. That's why we pray thoughtfully to look back at different moments of the Lord's faithfulness to remind ourselves if he can restore us then, he can restore us now, and he will restore us in the future. That's what it means to pray thoughtfully. Honestly, thoughtfully, here's number three. Pray faithfully. And here's where I want to zoom in on verses five and six. It's that image of the, these farmers that go out into the field and they're sowing their seeds while they're weeping. And uh, one commentator that I read said that in our modern American context, it kind of takes the, the, the punch out of this imagery and out of this metaphor. Because back then, farmers didn't just go to Lowe's anytime they needed a bag of seed. They invested everything they had at the beginning of every season in that seed. That seed represented their ability to feed their family, to pay their bills, as it were, to pay off all of their debts. Everything was riding on that seed. And so it feels so strange. You take this investment that you're riding everything on, and then you got into a field, and you just throw it away. You throw it out into the dirt, as it were. You, you scatter the seed around it. It feels like it is this huge risk. I'm taking my family's, you know, future, and we're just throwing it into this field, and you're releasing control. I'm, I've done my job. I bought the seed. I've planted it. I've done all that. I've prepared the soil. But in many ways, you, you are relinquishing control because you can't control the weather. You can't control how much sun or rain the, the plants get. You can't control whether or not slugs come, you know, come up and eat all the produce of, of what's you know, growing. You, you, you have lost, you're surrendering. That's what faith is. In many ways, this is why prayer and faith are so intimately connected. Prayer is uh, faith in practice. It's, it's you surrendering. It's you putting your life, as it were, in God's hands. You relinquishing control because you know in the back of your mind this is the only way that fruit is going to pop up. If I'm going to be a joyful, whole, healed 
person, the only way that that happens is when I, when I let go. This is why Jesus says in, in Matthew 16, he says, if you want to save your life, you want to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you want to give your life away for my sake, you'll find it. It will spring up. In fact, here's what this looks like in the context of tears. If you start to feel sadness and you experience pain and instead of allowing yourself to feel that sadness, if what you decide to do is self-medicate and to just cut the feeling off, numb it by eating, drinking, Netflix binging, cleaning, shopping, whatever it is that you do, it's, it's like holding on to all of the seed and never planting it. It's just, it's, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't produce anything. In fact, the, the, the seed just eventually starts to rot and you become a more bitter, more angry, more anxious, more addicted, more cut off person. It does not produce the fruit of joy and wholeness and transformation. And on the other hand, if you feel the pain, if you feel the sadness, you feel the tears, and instead of uh, holding on to it, if you just emote, if you just vent, you just dump it all out. Tim Keller uses this uh, interesting image. Of, this would be like a farmer taking all of the seed and going out into the middle of the field and just dumping the whole bag into one spot. That doesn't produce fruit and joy and wholeness either. There's no harvest there. It's just dumping it all into one spot, just venting everything that you're feeling. In fact, uh, it made me think of this story. John Lennon, who, uh, you know, was one of the Beatles. When he broke away from the Beatles in 1970, he recorded his first solo album. It's called Plastic Ono Band. You can find it on Spotify. And uh, at the time, Lennon was really into this form of therapy called primal scream therapy, which at the time was this popular uh, form of therapy where you were guided to find painful experiences from your past and then allow yourself to release the pain of that experience through screaming, hysteria, and violence, with the thought being that if you can just get in touch with this and get it all out, it gets out. And so the first song on that album is a song called Mother. It's a story about how his mom left him when he was a child. And it is, I mean, at the end of the song, Lennon is screaming into the microphone over the music and you're listening to it and it's just, it's really painful. It's really hard to hear. You can go listen to it this afternoon. But it's, it's, it is just this, you know, him kind of thinking, I, I've got to get this out. But here's the thing, nobody really does primal scream therapy anymore because what they realized is scream, venting your anger doesn't, doesn't release it, it fuels it you actually become a more angry person the more that you scream, the more that you rage, the more that you protest. So what do you do with your tears then? What does it look like to pray faithfully? It doesn't look like you take all of your pain and you hold on to it. You stuff it, deny your pain, self-medicate. It doesn't look like you go out and you just dump them all into one spot, scream, vent. It looks like taking your tears and, and giving them over to God. To, to plant them in the fertile soil of God himself. This is what it means to, to pray faithfully, to surrender and to give the, the sacredness and the fragility of your heart over to him, knowing that it's only in the context of relationship that your heart will ever be healed. In fact, this is another sermon, but it's, it's, it's not just with God, it's with other people as well. That part of what it means to, to be faithful to be vulnerable, to be willing to let other people in 
and to share your heart with you, God and others. It's only in the context of relationship that tears turn to joy, where healing actually happens. Honestly, thoughtfully, faithfully, finally, expectantly. What does it mean to pray expectantly? Well, again, uh, verse 5 through 6, they talk about this, okay, you plant in tears, but one day it'll give way to joy. Uh, You go out there and you plant in while you're weeping. One day you're going to come back with bushels of produce, harvest of of joy. And here's here's what's frustrating about that image, especially for modern-day Americans, is because you know how planting stuff works. You go out in the field, in in your little garden, you plant something in the ground, and then you wait And you go out there the next day to check on its progress, and it's just dirt. You're like, okay, I'll go back tomorrow. Go back the next day, check on its progress. Dirt. And as Americans, we're like, I I wanted cucumbers yesterday. How long is this going to take? And uh, that's the problem with this image, is is that there's no timeline given for how long it takes. And for many of us, I'm guessing, for those of us who might identify as people who follow Christ... You've been through seasons where you've done this. You, you've, you haven't held on to your tears, and you haven't just dumped your tears. You've given them to God, and it just feels like all you're getting is dirt. You just keep doing it over and over and over, and you're getting nothing. You're getting the silence that C.S. Lewis was talking about, and you're like, how, how long, oh, Lord, is this going to take? What's the point? Why would I keep giving my heart to you if all I'm getting is just dirt? How can I have any guarantee that all this is true why would I give you my heart when I'm, get, when I'm getting nothing? So how can you pray expectantly? How can you pray with real hope that something's going to burst out of that ground? Here's how. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who's a famous theologian, author, pastor, uh, he made a really fascinating observation about this psalm. He says, if you look at it, verse 5 is a description of people in the plural But when you get to verse 6, he zeroes in and he starts talking about an individual person. He who goes out weeping. And he asks this question, who is that he? Who's the he there? And Sinclair Ferguson says, if you were to ask that question to Jesus, Jesus would say, that's me. I'm the he that goes out weeping and comes back bringing a, a harvest of joy. Because think about it. Jesus, too, is on this pilgrimage to to Jerusalem. And right as he crests the hill, right as he turns the corner and he sees the city in view, what does he begin to do? He begins to weep. He cries out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and he's lamenting over the city. And then he goes into the city with his disciples, and they're, and they're there for the bulk of the week. And then on the night before he is crucified, he says when he's uh, with his disciples, he is uh, overcome with sorrow. The Bible says he, he is sorrowful to the point of death. Why? Because he knows what's coming. He knows the next day there's a cross waiting for him. And sure enough, he gets arrested. He gets nailed to this cross. And as he's on the cross, at his utter moment of vulnerability and pain, he cries out to God for help. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what he gets in that moment? The door slammed in his face bolted, that silence, that rejection, that abandonment that C.S. Lewis talked about. God knows what it's like to turn to God and get nothing but silence. Why? Why is he doing that? 
Lots of reasons, but here's the most important, I think. He is being abandoned by God in that moment in our place. He's receiving what you and I deserve so that you and I might receive what he deserves, which is the joyful reception of being connected to God. Jesus is bearing in himself what you and I deserve. He is abandoned so that we would never be abandoned again. This is why the Bible says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, meaning it is a cosmic impossibility for God to ever abandon those in Christ again. Why? Because Jesus was abandoned for us. And... Three days later, like a seed going into the ground, three days later, he bursts out, bursts out of the grave, and he kicks off this worldwide, global, cosmic revolution of making all things new, re restoring everything that was asked for in verse 4 of the psalm, because that's who he is. That's what he does. In fact, all of human history now is bending towards the restoration of all things. We get this amazing picture in Revelation 21, at the end of the Bible, this picture of what does a restored world look like, a new heavens and a new earth, and it looks like God wiping away our tears. Jesus experienced the tears of the cross so that he would be able to wipe away our tears forever. And so, because the gospel is true, that's why we pray expectantly, knowing that this, this season of waiting, this may, this may be a month, it may be a year, it may not even show up in my lifetime. It may, I may just have to wait for the age to come for that harvest of joy. But the point is, it's coming. He's the kind of God that takes baked, dry deserts and turns them into rivers of life. He's the kind of God that can take our hearts, which may look like barren fields of dirt, and he can turn them into harvests of joy because that's the kind of God that we serve. So the invitation for you this morning is to bring your tears to him. Bring your sadness to this God because he is a God that promised to one day take your eyes that are filled with tears and turn them into mouths that are filled with laughter. It's good news. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would give us the courage to be honest about our sadness, our pain, not just of our own life, but of the, the state of the world, the state of our city, the state of our country. And would we feel the freedom to bring our sadness to you, knowing that you are a God that does not despise us for our pain. You're not a God that shames us. For our pain, you are a God that receives us, that joins us in our pain and actually promises to one day heal it and make it right. Give us this vision of a God that enters into our suffering, bears it with us, and one day wipes away our tears forever. Thank you that you love us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.